Hey, Scott, what does this have to do with Texas? Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans. We're three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State, share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Stephen F. Austin battled adversity and hardship to make his father's dream of an Anglo-American colony in Texas a reality. The old 300 who made up this colony would be the seeds from which the eventual revolution, nationhood, and statehood of Texas would grow. Unlike many of the heroes of Texas, though, Austin was a proponent of peace and loyal to the Mexican nation until he was given no choice but to support revolution. But first, what's your favorite Longview native Forrest Whitaker movie? And you can't say Rogue One because it's not in movie theaters yet. <laughs> Darn. And it might not be any good. But um, given the field of available candidates, uh, and since we're specifying movies specifically, I'm going to go with uh, Blown Away, which also co-stars uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Jeff Bridges. Uh, wherein I, if I remember correctly, Forrest Whitaker gets blowed up real good. <laughs> well, I am going to go with Jean-Claude Van Damme's Bloodsport. Kumite, 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 Kumite. That is a classic he, film. He falls in the water, I think, yeah, he falls in the water of Hong Kong Harbor there in uh, Kowloon. And I've actually been there, and I would not jump in that water. So he is a brave actor who does a lot for his craft. Well, I my favorite movie of his is one of my favorite movies is Good Morning Vietnam, where he plays Airman Garlic, who is uh, Robin Williams's sidekick in Gopher, and uh, just a magical, wonderful performance from a great actor. Kudos to you. Texas loves you, Forrest Whitaker. Keep up the good work. Oscar winner, Forrest Whitaker. I know, I know. So if you know him, tell him to come on the show. (laughs) Though he was often considered too moderate in his dealings with the Mexican government, there can be little doubt that without the efforts of Stephen F. Austin, Texas would never have gained its independence from Mexico. Anglo settlers would have been banished from the province years before the revolution occurred if it were not for his deft political maneuvering. And when the abuses of the Mexican government, including his own unlawful imprisonment, became too great, Austin was as vocal a proponent for independence as anyone else. But it was a long journey to that point for the father of Texas. After taking over his father Moses' dream of an Anglo-American colony in what was originally Spanish Texas and later Mexican Texas, Stephen Austin thought he'd overcome all of the political obstacles and pitfalls that were in his way. The first of his original 30... The first of his original 300 colonists had braved a shipwreck, Indians, and a drought to settle into their new land. Austin arrived in early 1822 with more colonists and set out to San Antonio to seek more supplies. What he found would be a common sight in Mexican Texas for the next decade and a half, political political chaos because of the happenings in Mexico City. As might be expected, the Mexican Revolution taking place right when Austin was trying to establish his colony kind of set everything catawampus. A year before, when Stephen Austin got his colony confirmed, Mexico was controlled by a provisional Congress, which had given the provisional power to Governor Martinez. However, it wasn't long before the factions were at each other's throats and a revolution broke out in Mexico City. Another revolution. 
1821, a junta led by Augustine Iturbide had taken power, and news finally reached Texas. Governor Martinez informed Austin that the junta refused to recognize the land grants authorized by Spain or his previous provisional government. They planned to use a general immigration law to regulate new settlement in Mexico. This immigration law would negate Austin's claim and severely restrict further immigration into Texas. Austin did not give up and take this turn of events without a fight. He went straight to the source, traveling to Mexico City to plead his case. There he convinced the junta to approve his father's grant, as well as a law that had been signed in by Iturbide, the new Mexican emperor. This law offered the heads of family several incentives for settling in the area. It was about 4,600 acres of extra land. It was an old imperial law that allowed there to be impresarios in the first place, and as part of the law, Austin would personally be given 67,000 acres of land for each 200 families that he brought to Texas. As listeners of the show will know, by listening to our Santa Ana episode, Emperor Itribidi abdicated in March of 1823, and the law was once again annulled. This left Austin's colony in limbo. He was yet again broke, and he had to borrow money from a retired English general who was also living in Mexico City. And this was just so that he could eat. In April, Austin managed to convince the New Mexican Congress to legally let him bring his 300 families into Texas. A year later, in 1824, the Congress finally passed a new immigration law that allowed the individual states to administer public lands and to open them up for settlement within certain conditions. This move proved to be in Austin's favor. In March of 1825, the legislature of the state of Cojilla y Tejas passed a law that was very similar to the one put into place by Iturbide when he was emperor. The law continued the impresario system and granted each married man a league of land, or 4,428 acres, so long as he paid the state $30, which is the equivalent of about $630 today, within six years of laying claim to that land. Though settlers had been trickling into the area since the beginning, it took until late 1825 before Austin brought all of the old 300 to his settlement, the Austin Colony. He had already obtained further contracts to bring in another 900 families between 1825 and 1829. As impresario, Austin had broad authority over his settlers. He was expected to control the immigration into the area, establish law, allocate land, and establish a basic infrastructure that would include roads, schools, mills, granaries, whatever you needed. Austin used his political power to help establish the Constitution of Cojilla y Tejas in November of 1827, a constitution based on the American Constitution and included many freedoms of our wonderful country. Since a standing army was unfeasible, he also organized small, informal armed groups to aid in the defense of settlers. Eventually, these groups and their organization would be the basis of the Texas Rangers. Despite the authority he had and the amount of land he was responsible for, Stephen Austin was not making his fortune with his colony. Though he was entitled to charge immigrants 12 and a half cents an acre, many of them just didn't pay him. Most of the money he did make went to pay for the many processes required by the government to run the colony and on other public services. Despite how strongly he lobbied and fought for his colony, Austin himself was an unassuming man with a friendly presence. He was widely respected in the colony, and he had impressive influence over the motley assortment of settlers, as well as other impresarios settling in the land. Now, Austin was a Freemason, and he tried to establish Freemasonry in Texas once his colony was up and running. 
The practice of Freemasonry was already well established among the educated classes of Mexican society. By 1827, Americans living in Mexico City had introduced the United States' York Rite of Freemasonry as a liberal alternative to the established conservative Scottish Rite. On February 11, 1828, Austin called a meeting of Freemasons at San Felipe to elect officers and petition the Masonic Grand Lodge in Mexico City for a charter for a Texas branch. Naturally, Austin was elected Worshipful Master. The petition created at the meeting reached Matamoros and was supposed to be sent on to a Mexico City, but nothing ever came of it. Or did it? Hey, Scott, what does this have to do with Texas? I mean, were the Masons under Austin trying to rule the world, much like the Illuminati? Well, actually, it has a very good connection to what would come the next few years in Texas. You see, the ruling faction in Mexico were already worried that liberal elements in Texas might be seeking their own independence, and they knew that the philosophies of the American Freemasons and what a powerful force they could be uh, is when you look at, you know, this thing we call the American Revolution. So, the Mexican government outlawed Freemasonry on October 25th, 1828. Now, ever seeking peaceful coexistence, Austin called another meeting of the Texas Freemasons, where it was decided that it was, quote, impolitic and imprudent at this time to form Masonic lodges in Texas. This was one of the first removals of freedom imposed on American colonists in Texas. Further evidence of Austin's belief that the growing disputes between the Anglo-Texas settlers and the Mexican government could be solved within the laws established by the government was his aid in the suppression of the Fredonian Rebellion. When fellow empresario Hayden Edwards raised a rebellion against the Mexican government in Nacogdoches, Austin raised troops to fight alongside Mexican troops against these rebels. And though the Fredonian Rebellion failed to win Texas independence, it was considered by many to be the real start of the Texas Revolution. Whatever the case, it certainly laid the seeds for the actual rebellion that succeeded many years later. By 1832, there were more than 11,000 Anglo colonists in Texas, and they were becoming less and less satisfied with Austin's cautious style of leadership. On the other hand, the Mexican government found the colonization of Texas by the Americans too aggressive and was becoming less cooperative. They attempted to stop further immigration as early as April of 1830, but Austin managed to gain an exemption for his original colonies. The steadily increasing immigration controls and tariffs led to more and more dissatisfaction with these colonists, and it reached a peak with what are known as the Anahuac Disturbances. Austin had little choice but to become more involved. Austin had little choice but to become more deeply involved in Mexican politics. He threw his support behind an upstart politician named Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. He shows promise! It proved the right choice as Santa Ana gained phenomenal success. The Texas colonists tried to capitalize on it, and at the Convention of 1832, they demanded resumption of immigration, tariff exemption, and separation from Cohia, and a new state government for Texas. Austin himself opposed these demands. He felt that they were ill-timed given the, as we know, very unstable political climate in Mexico, and the Mexican government's continued suspicion regarding American colonists. The U.S. had already made offers to buy Texas, and Mexico suspected that Anglo colonies in Texas were simply a way for the U.S. to steal the territory. If they split off from Coahuila, the Anglos would be the majority population of Texas. Austin tried to moderate the demands, but they were repeated and repeated and repeated. 
and even extended at the Convention of San Felipe in 1833. Worse, the colonists there demanded that Austin himself present those demands to the government. He traveled to Mexico City on July 18, 1833, and met with Vice President Valentin Gomez Farias. He managed to get the immigration ban lifted, but could not get Texas a separate state government. Though the colonists might not have agreed, there were legitimate legal reasons to reject this separation. By law, statehood in Mexico required a population of at least 80,000, and Texas had only 30,000 citizens. Despite his moderate views and his obvious loyalty to Mexico, or at least his respect for their laws, Austin was arrested by the Mexican government in January of 1834 in Saltillo. He was accused for trying to incite rebellion and for pushing uh, Texas independence. These accusations were leveled at him largely due to a letter he wrote on October 2, 1833, to the municipality of Bejar, recommending that they and all municipalities should unite in organizing a state under the Constitution of 1824. Um, he urged this whether the Supreme Government of Mexico approved the matter or not. No charges were officially filed against him, as no court would take jurisdiction over the case. Instead, they simply moved Austin from one prison to another. He was finally released under bond in December of 1834, though he was required, as terms of the release, to stay in the federal district around Mexico City. He was only fully freed under the general amnesty in July of 1835 and left Mexico in August to return to Texas, first stopping in New Orleans. Despite the delay, Austin was back in Texas in time for the beginnings of the revolution. Now, even though he was unjustly imprisoned, he still felt the best and safest course for the colonists was to work with liberal elements within the Mexican government. The outbreak of the revolution, however, left him with little choice but to throw his full support behind the quest for independence. Part of that was realizing that the liberal elements in the Mexican government were Santa Ana, who had thrown him into prison. Now, Austin took temporary command of the Texian forces during the very first part of the war up through the siege of Bejar from October 12th to December 11th. Um, he wasn't a general, he wasn't a soldier, uh, but he was the most well-known Texan at the time. Now, while he didn't participate in any battles, he used his diplomatic powers to support the effort for independence. In December 1835, he was relieved of command of the army uh, and placed in a position more to his talents. He was made the commissioner to the U.S. by the provisional government. His role was to seek military support from the United States and to lobby for annexation as a state by the United States. He also gave speeches along the way to drum up support and recruits for the Texas cause. Austin was in New Orleans when he received word on June 10, 1836, that Sam Houston had defeated Santa Ana and won independence for Texas at the Battle of San Jacinto. He returned to Texas at Peach Point in August, and on August 4th, he announced his candidacy to become first president of the brand new nation. He felt confident of his chances until a little over two weeks later when Sam Houston threw his hat in the ring on August 20th. Austin firmly believed he was the superior candidate, but suspected he would lose to the other man. He wrote, Many of the old settlers who are too blind to see or understand their interest will vote for him. Austin was correct in his prediction. He received 587 votes compared to Houston's 5,119, and he even came in third behind Henry Smith, who got 743. Despite losing the election for the highest office in the nation, Stephen F. Austin did have a place in the new republic's government. 
Houston had named him the first Secretary of State. Austin would only serve for two months. He was in the new capital of Columbia when he came down with a severe cold in December of 1836. Doctors were called in to help him, but his condition only worsened. At noon on December 27, 1836, he died of pneumonia, much as his father had 15 years before. In the short span between the death of Moses and Stephen, this empty land had become a colony, and the colony had become a nation. Texas. Although Austin may not have been as aggressive in his support for Texas independence as many people would have liked, his dying words certainly indicated that he thought it was a worthwhile cause. The independence of Texas is recognized. Don't you see it in the papers? Austin's contribution to Texas history was noted by the country's leaders at the time. When Sam Houston heard of his death, he ordered an official statement proclaiming, quote, the father of Texas is no more. The first pioneer of the wilderness has departed. Stephen F. Austin's body was buried at Gulf Prairie Cemetery in Brazoria, but it was reinterred at the Texas State Cemetery in 1910. The Texas State Cemetery is located in the capital of Texas, which, as we all know, is named after Stephen F. Austin. Austin never married, and with no children, he left his small estate to his sister, Emily Austin Bryan, who was a prominent Texas settler in her own right. Today, there are numerous schools, uh, elementary through high school, all the way up to a college named after Stephen F. Austin. And, of course, as we've mentioned before, there's a gigantic stone statue of him right in the middle of his old colony down in southeast Texas. Man, I mean... He's also now giant and made of stone. Yes. Yes, yeah, we just said that. I know. Well, here's so the... I want to make sure. Mm-hmm. Go see the statue. That's what Scott's trying to say. Look, here's the crazy thing to me about Stephen F. Austin is, um, and it, it maybe it comes across a little, we talked about it, but he's just very soft-spoken. You know, he's very thoughtful, introverted, intelligent man, very driven, but always very cool of, like, what the best course of action might be, and not afraid to make sacrifices. Like, he wasn't a famous knife fighter. He wasn't a famous... Huntsman. He was just a really smart guy and a great politician who um, was dealing with, you know, these knuckleheaded family, hot-headed Texans. <laughs> Texans. <laughs> and then, of They're course, Texicans. the the hot mess of the Mexican government uh, at the yeah. time. So I think he just he was he was somebody who was faced with just a you know the Gordian yeah. knot, as it were. I mean, can you imagine, you know, in the days, those days when it took weeks for mail to arrive, arrive where you get a letter. It's like, oh, there was a revolution in Mexico. And then like a couple of weeks later, you get another letter. Oh, there was another revolution. So. Yeah, yeah he, he spent a lot of time in Mexico City <laughs> for various reasons. Um, not 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 wanting to. I think it's amazing to me that, you know, between 1819, when his when his family lost their fortune and 1823 like that's like just a four-year period he became a, a judge in arkansas his father be, got a land grant in texas his father died he became an editor of the newspaper and then uh, then went to texas then he like went through all of this political chaos and he like went through like three governments in mexico during that time that's a really short period of time and then again in 1833, uh, you know, in a, in a three-year period, he went down to, to Mexico City, spent time in prison, 
Um, Texas Revolution broke out. They got their independence, and then he died. So, like, he had two stretches of, like, three- to four-year periods where there was so much crammed into this life of his. Yep. Well, that's, you know, that's every everybody we talk about, you know. Yeah. It was a newspaper man. He was a lawyer. And he, <laughs> he was a knife fighter. And he, he was a yeah. statesman. No, yeah. he, you know, like, he's he laid the table, and he's rightfully known as the father of Texas. I don't think... You know, it was a difficult road to birth the nation of Texas. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think he was the right man for the job at the time. It's just really sad when you hear this story of, yeah, then he ran against, yeah, then then Sam Houston decided to run for president. So that pretty much put yeah. that to bed. And then he got sick and died. Then he worked himself yeah. to death, yes. basically. Yeah. Basically. He worked himself to death. Yep. And he, yeah. and he didn't have much of a social life. Um there's a question about you know, why why did he die a bachelor and 43 no wife and kids, uh, but yeah I I've read that he was engaged at one point to a girl I believe in Louisiana but he never got around to marrying her so, um, the, you know there was there's there was just never time for the family for him. Yeah well you got to you got to make time for family. Yeah um, and the other interesting thing is so the town of Bryan which is near where College Station is, the home of Texas A&M, is named after his Emily Austin's husband, James Bryan. Um, and they were prominent Texas settlers, and their Austin's older three nephews, I believe, fought in the Revolution. Two of them were actually at the Battle of San Jacinto. So one of them was named Moses Austin Bryan. Hmm. And he San- actually, yeah, he, he, he along with Seguin were translators for uh, Santa Ana. Huh. Well, there you San go. Jacinto. San Jacinto. 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 Well, look, there's there's nothing... If you're a Texan or you love Texans, you should be very thankful for this man and appreciative of what Stephen F. Austin accomplished and did. Good job, Good job, Steve. And someday we shall see that uh, oversized death match between the Stephen F. Austin and Sam Houston statues. Well, well, At least until the Jim Bowie statue wades in from the Mississippi and yeah. takes them both out. Yeah. Well, he, he currently defends the Texas coast while, while Sam defends the, the main artery from Houston to Dallas. Yes. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I am Scotticus. Big thanks to our friend James Abendroth for helping us to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press or find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. We know you love this show. We know you love Texas. So do your duty. Get out there and tell your friends. And tell them to leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, why not head over to patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.